welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome to Is the U.S. Government Ready for the Climate Crisis? Examining Federal, State, and Local Climate Adaptation, an episode of the Environmental Law Institute's People, Places, Planet Podcast. My name is Cynthia Harris, Staff Attorney and Director of Tribal Programs at the Environmental Law Institute, where we make law work for people, places, and the planet. 120 degree Fahrenheit temperatures in Canada, deadly flooding in central China and Europe, record drought and unprecedented wildfires across the Western United States. It's official. Climate change isn't the future. It's here now. Climate change impacts often talked about as not happening until the middle or end of the century have arrived early on our doorstep, just like an overeager guest while the host is still in the shower. How ready are we in the United States for this unwelcome visitor, whom we have admittedly invited, pumping carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere since the dawn of the industrial age? How prepared are we to adapt to the climate change impacts we're already experiencing at every level of government? We're very fortunate to be joined today by three experts on the topic. Dr. Barrett Ristroff of Ristroff Law, Planning and Research, where she serves tribes, communities, and agencies on matters related to natural resources, hazard mitigation, government, and climate change adaptation. Katie Spidia-Leary, Senior Associate at Georgetown Climate Center, who conducts legal and policy analysis on adaptation and is lead author of the Climate Center's Manage Retreat Toolkit. And Jennifer Lee, staff attorney and adjunct professor at the Harrison Institute for Public Law, Georgetown University Law Center, where she leads the Institute's work on climate adaptation, housing, and human rights. All three attorneys are co-authors on the climate change chapter for the most recent edition of EOI's own legal treatise, Law of Environmental Protection, where they tackle the topic of adaptation at the federal, state, and local levels. Barrett, Katie, and Jennifer, thank you so much for being with us here today. Could each of you give a snapshot on your background and the work you're doing right now on these issues? Jennifer, would you like to start? Cynthia, thanks for um, having us today. It's really great to be here. Um, By way of background, I, I guess I'm a human rights lawyer by training, and I kind of stumbled my way into climate change by looking at the intersections between the two, human rights and climate. And I think it's that background that has really influenced my interest in focusing on kind of the human face of climate change impacts, particularly our frontline communities um, that are hit first and hardest and have the least resources to adapt and recover. Um, In my current role, I teach a policy clinic that works on many things, um, but including climate adaptation and community development, which are my primary focus areas. Um, And at the Harrison Institute, we also work closely with our sister institute just down the hall or down the street now um, at the Georgetown Climate Center, where um, Katie Spidaleri is a colleague. And we have collaborated on mass retreat and equitable adaptation, um, looking specifically at issues like how do we prepare receiving communities or places that will be absorbing populations displaced by climate change impacts, whether it's you know wildfires or, or sea level rise. Um, and an increasingly important focus of my work has been looking at um, and doing community engagement on the ground, 
working with frontline populations and um, historically disenfranchised communities to help ensure that their self-determined priorities are um, centered in a local decision-making around climate change. Thank you, Jennifer. So really where the rubber meets the road in terms of these impacts. And you just gave us the perfect lead in for Katie. Thank you, Jennifer. And thank you so much, Cynthia, for having us today. I'm excited. This is my first podcast and podcast on an important topic. Um, so Cynthia, as you mentioned, I work at Georgetown Climate Center. We're a nonprofit, non-advocacy based organization affiliated with Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. We serve as a climate law and policy resource for states and communities confronting different impacts from climate change. I work on our adaptation team and I do two main things. First, I lead our coastal adaptation and resilience work. And on that front, a lot of our work over the past few years has been focused on managed retreat, as Jennifer alluded to, which is sort of one of three possible coastal adaptation solutions, which really gets policymakers and communities thinking about opportunities to maybe require or voluntarily um, disengage from development in vulnerable flood impacted areas and thinking about transitions for people and ecosystems to higher ground, safer areas away from these flood impacted and prone areas. Um, we released an online toolkit that Cynthia mentioned um, last year, which is an online resource that looks at different legal and planning tools and policy considerations that state and local decision makers can think about if they're working with communities on assessing potential um, options to adapt to climate change. So that's one big bucket of my work. The second is I'm fortunate to work a lot on state level adaptation. Um, to that end, the Climate Center serves as a neutral convener for over 20 states across the country. I think we're now approaching 30 um, through a peer learning and networking forum we have called the State Policy Forum, um, which engages states and people who work at in agencies and governor's offices on adaptation and resilience um, through different networks and forums like bi-monthly webinars. And we also maintain different online tools and resources, including our state adaptation progress tracker, which gives a snapshot of how states are adapting to climate change across the country, uh, which was a really important resource that fed into the work for the chapter for this legal treatise. Thank you, Katie. And I'll, I'll mention for our listeners that th these are really terrific resources that I certainly take advantage of a lot. So we'll introduce now Barrett to take us to the federal level. Hi everyone, this is Barrett Ristroff. Thank you so much for including me today. I was one of the people who worked on the federal part of the climate change adaptation along with A.R. Siders, who's not here with us today. Uh, well, I do a wide variety of work. Some of it is law, a lot of it is planning, a lot of it is just weird stuff. But the part that's most relevant to what we're talking about today with climate change is my work with some of the tribes in Alaska, including the village of Newtok, which is completely relocating to a new site due to permafrost melt and erosion uh, destroying its current village. I also work with a, a large umbrella organization in the interior of Alaska starting up a climate change adaptation department there. And my biggest interest really in climate change adaptation is getting on the ground and doing stuff because there's certainly a lot of talk, a lot of information gathering, a lot of uh, plans being issued uh, but when when you get when the rubber meets the road and you're trying to actually get money to move a house that's falling in the water uh, all the research in the world doesn't seem to be as useful as you'd like it to be so a, a lot of my work is is very unglamorous it's contracts related to construction 
It's making sure that people are following the procurement policies for the contractor they hire and that sort of stuff. It's, it's really the, um, the unglamorous part of climate change adaptation. But I, I'm also thrilled when I get to have some kind of uh, more distant, safe in the office kind, kind of research to do that involves climate change adaptation. So it was really a joy to work with Ciders and the rest of you on, on this part of the climate change adaptation chapter. Thank you, Barrett. And I think, I think you bring up a topic we might discuss later, the so-called analysis paralysis when it comes to actually acting on climate adaptation, which brings us to a really important point, which is defining for our listeners what exactly we mean when we say the word adaptation. So we'll borrow from the 2018 National Climate Assessment, where adaptation refers to actions taken at the individual local, regional, and national levels to reduce risk from current and future climate conditions. So since we have three legal experts, let's dive right into it. Could each of you lay out for our listeners the legal framework, asterisks such as it is, for each level of government? And let's start with federal with Barrett, move on to state, and then go to local. Sure. In terms of the legal framework for adaptation at the federal level, there is not some, some big adaptation law or the Climate Change Adaptation Agency. What there are, however, are many, many agencies and many laws and programs that are, that are relevant to climate change adaptation. They're just not called adaptation. And one that I think of a lot and probably most listeners are familiar with, the Federal Emergency Management Agency usually they're doing work after the fact, after the disasters that are aggravated by climate change. Uh, I'm here in Louisiana today and we just had Hurricane Ida and so FEMA has been cleaning up after that, but they also have some programs that are more adaptive trying to prevent some of the damage such as the hazard mitigation program. But that's just one element, the, the FEMA element. So when you think about adaptation, there's thinking about construction and houses and, and resources in the land and wildlife and the Army Corps working on erosion issues. So it, it's a very broad landscape of agencies that's outlined in this chapter and it's, it's a struggle just to get it down to the key agencies. What about on the state level, Katie? Because we're talking about different levels of government either working separately or, or coordinating. Absolutely. And I think you'll hear a lot of us today on the need for a coordinated approach across all levels of government. Um, but at the same time, each level of government and down to communities themselves um, play an important and distinct role that has to be considered separately as well. Uh, at the state level, um, thinking about how states are adapting to climate change across the country, there's really no one size fits all approach. Uh, in terms of the actors at the state level, there may be a call to adapt or pursue resilient strategies either inside or outside of a disaster recovery context, either from the governor in a state, um, a state legislature, or both. Or sometimes there's even examples of state agencies um, taking their own impetus or action around adaptation and resilience outside of that executive or legislative sort of leadership role. What I will say though, is that even though there's no one size fits all approach to state adaptation, there are some commonalities in terms of areas in which states are working. Um, so first, I would say um, one increasingly common 
way that states are working on adaptation and resilience is to form some type of governance structure or body um, that often works across different agencies. And this could be situated within like a governor's cabinet or sort of work more at the interagency level. In addition, planning is really a critical element to sort of set a vision or a strategic plan for how states might approach adaptation. I think this happens in two primary ways. So first, um, states are increasingly coming up with what they might call their climate adaptation plan, um, or has various names across agencies and action plan and strategy. Um, states even personalize some of these, like Rhode Island's is Resilient Rhodey. Um, Maine has one called Maine Won't Wait. Um, but this really sets sort of the statewide strategy across different climate impacts and sectors, like infrastructure, natural resilience, um, housing, for how a state might outline goals and objectives for how it wants to tackle climate change. The other main type of planning that we're seeing states tackle is thinking about maybe sector-specific plans or plans that are more specifically focused on a specific type of climate impact, like flooding, um, to help guide actions within a specific agency or across agency in terms of how that should be approached. In addition to thinking about the legal framework, sort of these commonality pieces, um, states are also looking at ways to improve um, permitting programs for new development or redevelopment, especially in a disaster context, and funding programs where states are providing some or all of the source funding for different types of projects that are occurring at the local level and trying to interject um, either climate considerations from a procedural perspective. So maybe mandating that you know project proponents for new permits have to consider climate impacts when they're constructing a new road or a new home in a climate vulnerable area and how might that impact sort of the siting and design of new development or ultimately requiring that certain types of things happen um, through new permitting and funding programs um, for example like maybe buildings have to be built uh, a, to a certain height above sort of how um, flood levels are measured in a given floodplain. So it could be sort of uh, mandatory from a procedural perspective, what do I have to consider, versus mandatory from a perspective of what do you actually have to do if you want to get a permit or if you want to get funding. Um, in addition to thinking about permitting and funding, I think the other critical way that states are looking at to adapt to climate change is by providing um, funding and other type of support for local governments um, in partnership with one another. And that can be either through increasing authorities for local government um, to do certain actions like land use and zoning or requiring um, that local governments take certain actions. So there's a minimum consistent level of what you might call adaptation or resilience across um, state and local governments. And then there's also opportunities to think about um, providing funding opportunities through grant programs, technical assistance through things like data. And so really just looking at the myriad ways that state can support local government, even though it's ultimately coming within this state legal framework. And that's very helpful, Katie, in terms of state rules, both in terms of uh, direct regulation, hands-on, as well as funding for local governments. And, and on that note, I'd like to get uh, Jennifer's insights into what role local governments can or, or do play. It sounds like they have a lot of opportunity, but might also be limited in what they can do. Yeah, so I promise this is not a conspiracy between the three of us, but I will uh, co-sign both Barrett and Katie to say that, you know, like at the federal and state levels, there is no standard 
um, legal framework, so to speak, for local governments. And I, I should mention that when we speak about local governments, we are meaning um, counties and municipalities or townships or subunits of the state um, specifically. Um, and that's because, you know, local government authority differs across jurisdictions. I, I do not want to get into the nitty gritty of home rule versus dual rural states. But, you know, when it comes to responding to and preparing for the impacts of climate change, you know, Boston has a very different climate plan than that of uh, Miami or Boise or Houston. That's because one, the climate hazards can be very different. Um, two, local government structures could also be very different and different cities have different levels of local authority. So, you know, in the end, what we do have is a patchwork system of responses at the local level, which is um, largely comprised of different land use measures in addition to local programs, for example, for stormwater infrastructure to help manage, um, you, know, you know, rainfall and things like that. And then what we see increasingly at the local levels are climate plans um, at the city level, like you do see at the state or county levels. Um, despite all that, that's not to say that there aren't existing legal tools that local governments can draw on to help with climate adaptation and to help um, local governments meet the climate urgency that we're all we're all um, facing. So, you know, it's not as if a student can go into the library and look under a climate law or look for a climate law per book per se. What they will have instead is, um, you know, local land use regulations that influence what development looks like and different uses of the land. Um, that could also include things like zoning ordinances, which designate specific uses of the land. And we also have building codes that um, establish safety standards and, and technical specs for building construction, for example, um, requirements like elevating structures or freeboard. Um, and then many places also have comprehensive plans or also what we call uh, general or ma master plans, depending on, on where you are, that shape the built environment and the physical orientation of the spaces where we live and where we work. Um, but unfortunately, like any good plan, they stay a plan and merely on paper until they are actually implemented um, very frequently through a zoning ordinance. Um, and then I think, you know, as, as Barrett and, and Katie might have mentioned, climate change is so swiftly moving that it really challenges us or forces us to think more broadly about adaptation measures. And so adaptation or climate change really can't be thought about in a silo. It's not just environmental law or land use law, right? It touches on issues of public health and transportation, education. And I think that is kind of the responsibility for, um, you know, for local policy makers and decision makers, local, state and federal, um, moving forward when we confront issues of climate change. Listening to the three of you, I'm forming a picture of a jigsaw puzzle with several pieces missing, looking at federal, state, and local, where there's not really a comprehensive federal program, and some states and local governments are, are further along than others. So now that we have a bit of a snapshot on where we are on each of these levels, I'd like to start again with Barrett, getting that 30,000-foot view. Sure, thank you. You know, I did my dissertation on, on this theme and I kind of walked into it thinking, well, we need a national climate change adaptation agency and relocation agency, but that's kind of where I started. But at the end of it, after realizing there's already so many agencies doing adaptation, I, I kind of backed away from that thought that there should be the climate change agency. And I, I'm actually more inclined with, and I think this is what others may say too, better coordination between them. That I, what is the ideal law? We have an executive order from President Biden 
uh, January 27th of this year. Now that that would be ideal if something like this would really work, and if the task force that it calls for in Section 203 is something more than a task force, <laughs> they usually get lost in the halls of bureaucracy. But this is, does call for a task force among all the agencies who are doing things with, with climate change, and and if they really could meet and and be more coordinated on this, if this task force could truly coordinate it, that would be great. That would go with my thinking of we need to mainstream climate change adaptation into everything we do rather than having one agency sit in a tower and, and kind of dictate what to do. Uh, so I would I would be great if, if this task force becomes something that that's really going to work and really going to touch base with all of the agencies, make sure they're mainstreaming climate change adaptation, also be a point of contact for the public and for states and localities because most people have no idea where to turn. Any community trying to relocate has no idea what to do. There's There's no path. So if a task force or some other thing like this could help help the public, help the states and localities with a roadmap, give them some some guidance that they could use and they could choose to enact that kind of guidance or give them a floor, which then the states and the localities could build on, that would be ideal. And Barrett, you forgot to mention the czar. We're, we're very big on appointing czars in federal government when we need someone to take charge of something, right? <laughs> Czars and task force, but I, I just don't, yeah, I mean, like I said, they usually, you know, the czar gets sent off to a tower and then you don't hear from them again. Katie, what are your thoughts when it comes to state level? Sure. So I think states can play a really critical role in looking at sort of the federal, state, local government, and then community scheme of how you can address adaptation and resilience. And I can say before coming to the Climate Center, I worked for the federal government and you sometimes get this perception of like the federal government is really powerful and you forget about state and local authorities and having the opportunity to work at the climate center i've just seen the amazing work that states and local governments are doing in this space and it really reminds you of sort of our tripartite system of government here not to mention any types of intersecting regional levels of government you have um, so i think not surprisingly uh, states are sort of an intermediary between the federal and local governments and sort of they serve this unique niche of where they can provide some of the same types of support that Barrett talked about in terms of funding and technical assistance, data, um, helping communities convene or get templates for how they might approach something, sort of what are best practices, um, but they're gonna be a little bit closer to the local level than federal governments and also have more flexibility to be able to address sort of the specific impacts and needs that the people that live in that state have. Um, however, you know, there are going to be opportunities where, you know, states are still one step removed from that local government level. And so I think I look at that as a reality versus a weakness. Um, that's just the way that our government is set up. And I think that ultimately can just serve as an incentive for states to coordinate very closely with local governments and community residents to ensure that the type of support that they are providing is what local governments and communities need. And it's packaged in a way, whether that's like a mandatory legal requirement, um, something that gives a local government an opportunity to create an optional designation for something relating to land use and zoning, or whether it's providing funding opportunities um, is really packaged in a way that enables local governments and communities um, to get to work on the things that they want and need um, and isn't so disconnected that it can't sort of set them up for success at the local level. This might be a bit of a curveball, Katie, but have you heard, is there any discussion on the role of territories in terms, for example, Puerto Rico, which has been really walled by hurricanes, 
So I can honestly say that that is not my area of expertise, but I think that'd be something very important um, to sort of look at on a territory by territory basis. Um, I know, especially after Hurricane Maria, there's been a lot of work going on in Puerto Rico. Um, to what extent those there's sort of been the territorial or I don't know if you'd call it state level government in Puerto Rico, um, sort of leading or coordinating actions compared to the federal government. Um, I can't speak to that, um, but I will say is ideally or hopefully there'd be sort of that same federal territorial community level of coordination um, because ultimately each level of government provides an important distinct type of support, um, but it needs to be sort of driven through the lens of local adaptation and needs. And so hopefully they're all working together. Thank you, Katie. Jennifer, when it comes to local level, what, what are your thoughts on uh, those unique capabilities, especially given you made a great point that there's really a diversity in, in terms of resources and uh, just the positions of different types of local governments? Yeah, but first, Cynthia, I'm going to take a slight umbrage at your use of the word czar earlier, just because, you know, I do think having a top-down kind of coordination role is important, but I think what we see increasingly, whether you're talking about the community level or local government level, a lot of the responses and the priorities for those responses really need to come from the community members themselves, including the frontline community. So it's just as much of a bottom-up process as a top-down process if we have to use the language of hierarchy. Um, but to user, to, to more specifically uh, answer your question, you know, I'm going to borrow from what Barrett said earlier and say that you know local government responses are critical because local government is where the rubber meets the road in many ways. Um, Climate change, we know, is a global phenomenon, but that, you know, climate change strikes at the local level first, whether you're talking about nuisance flooding or urban heat islands or wildfires or, you know, extreme precipitation events, which is what the average person calls rain. Um, cities are the best position to know what the needs are at the local level, where streets tend to flood, where areas of the city may experience the most extreme heat. For example, in parts of um, Washington, D.C., Katie, in my backyard, there can be as much as a 17 degree difference in temperature depending on where you live in the city. And that's, of course, has a strong correlation with income level and race and all that. And we can get into that later. Um, we also know that while well, resource cities have the capacity to do the data mapping and vulnerability assessments that are so critical, to determining where the most climate distressed areas may be. Um, but that may not be the case for smaller cities and jurisdictions where the emergency planner or floodplain management coordinator is the same person and you know, wears five other hats over the course of a day. Um, in addition to kind of cities being best place to know or being able to ground truth information, local governments are also the first responders when it comes to climate change impacts, right? Whether um, it's in the aftermath of an emergency like Ida um, or wildfire or providing more steady state services during non-emergent events and making sure that there are resources and cooling centers for residents um, when you have those kind of slowly trickling um, climate impacts. Um, and then structurally, as we've talked about, local governments make land use decisions that impact how localities are able to respond to climate hazards. You know, the legal tools at the end of the day then can be enabled to help government implement the different types of climate strategies that Katie talked about, the, you know, protection, the protections or the armoring and the accommodating and the retreating. Um, and so, yeah, those, I mean, those in a nutshell are kind of why government or local government is so important. On the flip side, you know, cities are hamstrung without funding or, or technical support to help them actually implement their plans, whether it's a comprehensive plan that incorporates climate elements or a climate plan. Um, 
And you know, I'll also just add that in many parts of the country to this day, the phrase climate change is still politically fraught and um, climate planners have to talk around it or plan around it. And that becomes problematic when local councils are the ones tapped with you know, passing zoning ordinances and things like that, that you know, help uh, infrastructures adapt to climate change. And that becomes you know, just part of the matrix of, of the complexity of issues that we deal with. Thank you, Jennifer. And I am very duly schooled in what it, we're talking about, ensuring that this whole process is community led. I wonder if I could just mention the level that some people don't think of a lot of times, just the tribal level of governments, just like people don't think about the territories as much. There is a tribal level of government. Sometimes it's got a it's got a legal authority similar to states, uh, sometimes not under some laws, depending on what it is. And it can be very different for the over 500 different tribes there are, federally recognized tribes in the United States. Um, some of them are much larger and are equipped to have some of the resources to deal with this, where some of them, like in Alaska, are just really villages with very little funding and, and no land over which they have sovereignty. So it becomes a problem. It also becomes a problem because many of the tribes, some who aren't even federally recognized, are in these most vulnerable areas, kind of pushed on the edge and, and don't have much in the way of resources to even deal with adaptation. So not only is some kind of authority needed to deal with it, also there's a need for financial resources and capacity building to, to make sure they can deal with it. And that is extremely important, especially since it's quite often right now the a number of tribes that are being the first affected by climate change. So on that note, what I'd like to do is I'd like to start off uh, with you, Barrett, on uh, looking at tribes and federal, and then back to Jennifer and Katie. And I'd really like to hear first, because you mentioned New Talk, um, who are the leaders when it comes to native approaches and being proactive and preparing for climate change? Because I can imagine tribes would be first on that list. And as far as the federal side, I'm trying to think about which agencies are being most proactive, because the one I hear most often is actually the military. Well, certainly the, the approaches that work best are those that are driven from within the tribes. Uh, there's an ocean of consultants hot to, to help out um, tribes like this, and, and hey, myself included, some are more helpful than others. But the, when the response comes from the tribes and the communities themselves, when it's tribally driven, I think that tends to work best. But not all tribes really have the capacity to do this. In, in terms of, it remind me the rest of your question in, in terms of what they what they could be doing. Are you seeing, well, I can imagine there are a number of tribes that are essentially being forced to take innovative approaches and, and pave, the, pave the road for everyone else. But are there a couple examples that really stand out to you? Oh, there, there are. Uh, I, I think what New Talk is doing is, is forward moving and, and it took the community coming together and knowing where they wanted to, to be, knowing where they wanted to do the relocation and, and hiring the right people. I think that was very helpful. Uh, the Quinault folks, what they're doing in, in Washington state, I think is groundbreaking. I, I think, you know, Illusion Charles, that, that's gotten a lot of conversation in, in Louisiana, although there, there are two tribes involved, neither one of them federally recognized. Uh, so again, this problem of, of not having the, the resources. And then the issues of maybe, and then you could face the same issue with a locality as well or a state, not everyone being on the same page as to what's the problem and what do we want to do about it. I think that's very challenging for small tribes and localities. And, and I can imagine, especially with the 
relationship, the federal trust relationship, and as a bit of a segue, I'd be curious to know your thoughts on what more the federal government can do in terms of, of assisting the tribes and then moving on from there on uh, what you see the, the federal government is doing uh, right more broadly. Sure, and you had asked me what agency maybe is most involved. People think about a lot of being the Bureau of Indian Affairs just because they're associated with tribes. They certainly do have some money uh, to, to help tribes, but really the maximum money any tribe is going to get from BIA specifically for climate change is $150,000. And that's great, but that money is just for, for planning and that sort of thing. It's not going to move a building. It, really, the tribes are going to need help from agencies to, to a large degree, whether it's FEMA, whether it's housing and urban development for community development, block grants. And I think a lot of people in the United States would think, well, you know, why should this money go to, to tribes? And, and that goes back to the federal trust responsibility that, that you may have mentioned before. When a lot of these nations ceded their land, they had treaties, they had agreements where the government, federal government, was supposed to do certain things in return. So it's not charity for the federal government to be doing these things to make sure that they can stay in their land and continue their life ways. It goes back to, to some of the agreements that were made with the federal government a long time ago. Jennifer, I want to turn back to you. As I mentioned, you, you, you'd really stress the importance of this being bottom up, that this communities that are most being effective. And I'm curious from what you've seen, are, are there any cities, towns, other types of local governments that are being very innovative, either with regard to community leadership or, or more generally speaking? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think the cities that were leaders in developing the first iterations of climate plans 10 to 15 years ago, you're seeing them now update those plans with a focus on environmental or climate justice provisions. You know, we're looking at cities like um, Katie's hometown of Cleveland, Ohio, or Providence, Rhode Island, that have been centering social and racial equity into its climate plans. But they're not only just incorporating equity as an objective or a goal, you know, you also see it in the process and the ways that the plans are being designed by incorporating more community voices and doing much more community engagement um, from not just implementation levels, but also from the planning levels beginning of the process. Um, and then also, I think it's important to center in other priorities that community members care about, like housing and transportation or, you know, tree planting or green spaces and putting a greater focus on community health which um, has a great deal to do with increased individual community, individual, but also community resilience to um, climate and other quality of life indicators that people care about. Um, and then at the hyperlocal level in cities like Baltimore, you see a focus on um, hyperlocal solutions or neighborhood level solutions like a resilience hub, which you know, is a trusted community center that um, local residents can go to during both study states, but also emergency events and can help them with, you know, things like providing refrigeration for their medication or having chargers so that they can contact other people during the event of emergency. Um, and then, of course, Katie and I were just talking about this this morning, but, you know, we also see a disparity, unfortunately, between urban rural areas and where resources are being concentrated or focused. And I think it's fair to say that right now there is um, less resources, I think, allocated to more rural, rural areas across the country. And I think a lot of this has to do with just making sure there is a greater awareness of opportunities at the state and federal level to, to support rural um, areas and making sure that there's more flexibility in how federal dollars are spent. 
Well, that's an excellent point. And, and I'm curious, do you see any opportunities for some of these very, very small communities, um, these rural areas, these small towns? And any good examples you're seeing or any thoughts on that? Um, I will deflect that question because I have not focused a lot of my research on the rural areas, but I know that Katie has been looking at some rural areas for some of our work in Louisiana in the Gulf South. Katie, I'll turn to you if you have any thoughts on that, but also uh, generally where you're seeing some interesting leadership on the part of states. And I believe you'd also written on some distinction between coastal versus inland states. Exactly. Uh, sure to happy to follow up on a little bit on both. Um, so I think the point that Jennifer talked about in terms of elevating um, adaptation and resilience and also, I think just general administrative um, and financial constraints that rural communities are facing um, is is and needs to be an, an emerging part of you know a, a dialogue going forward. Um, we're fortunate to be working with a region in Louisiana, um, sort of looking at how we can potentially support uh, more resilient, affordable housing um, solutions and nature-based um, projects and opportunities for communities uh, in areas that are potentially growing in population now um, for reasons unassociated with climate change or that may experience population growth and transitions in the future due to reasons like climate change as people may choose to, or unfortunately, not be able to live in some areas along the coast. And I think, uh, long story short, you'll see that a lot of the dialogues or examples that you know people are talking about as best practices of climate adaptation are really being drawn um, primarily from more resourced or um, urban communities. Um, and I use that term lightly because obviously all municipalities um, face some types of resource constraints. Um, but in general, looking for opportunities, I think, to borrow lessons learned from um, communities that maybe have made more headway on adaptation and resilience, but translating them to a rural context. Uh, and that can be in a lot of different ways in terms of differences in resources, geography. Um, one thing that's really important is sort of the connectivity piece of things. So thinking about transit-oriented development, but in a rural context. Um, and so really trying to broker sort of connections between these types of different areas um, and sort of be able to have that translational piece um, to make sure that adaptation and resilient solutions are appropriate um, for rural areas, but where possible, you're not trying to reinvent the wheel um, and can sort of think about going forward. Um, and the region we're working in in Louisiana has a mix uh, across the urban, suburban to rural spectrum. Um, and so that's one thing we're actively sort of confronting um, and hoping we come up with some you know, good things from this process that can not only potentially be used um, and considered in Louisiana, but the Gulf or uh, the nation more broadly. To the state piece. So with states, when you sort of ask about like who are state leaders in adaptation resilience, um, I have a very attorney answer in that it depends um, in terms of how you define like what are your metrics of measuring sort of success or leadership. And so I think ultimately that's going to depend on sort of what you're looking at in terms of exemplars that you might point to at the state level. Um, but in general, I think, you know, we really started seeing adaptation and resilience take off at the state level um, around 2008, 2009, 2010, um, primarily in coastal states um, with some states like Maryland, California and Florida, um, really initiating the establishment of a governance body um, and a call for a statewide climate adaptation plan across different climate impacts, um, which are sort of those two pieces of that legal framework we discussed earlier. And so I think a lot of that was brought on um, in particular by flooding impacts 
Um, but since that early time frame, um, we've seen the number of states partaking in some type of adaptation or resilience action grow, um, and not just on the east and west coast, um, but also increasingly from states further inland, like Colorado, New Mexico, Montana, uh, and Minnesota. And it's really exciting to see, um, you know, states really take ownership of thinking about adaptation and resilience and what it really means um, in the context of their state. Um, as I mentioned, Georgetown Climate Center has a resource called the State Adaptation Progress Tracker that um, looks at how states are adapting to climate change across the country. Um, and based on that one resource alone, um, you know, there's over 20 states that are somehow taking action on climate change, um, whether that's being in the process of creating their state's first adaptation plan, or it's been around for over 10 years and they're updating it and have a lot more elements of sort of that state legal framework to be able to share. Um, what I will note, though, is that there's a couple of states that probably stand out as exemplars in terms of really addressing or tackling multiple parts of that climate adaptation and resilience framework at the state level. Um, and so I think some of those standouts across the board would be California, Maryland, uh, Massachusetts, and New York, um, just because of sort of the level and, and scale of the work that they're undertaking. Um, people often look to them for examples in a variety of different areas. Thank you, Katie. This is this is very helpful. I think the discussions also underline some areas where we can all do some more work and looking what the impacts are and ways to react. Um, in the time we have left, I'd like to throw out a couple of lightning round questions for the group. Uh, we touched on, on some important matters related to environmental justice, emerging impacts, legal tools. I'm curious what your thoughts are on opportunities for cross-jurisdictional coordination, and I'll leave it open to whoever would like to start first. Well, this is Barrett. You know, we do have a, a cross-jurisdictional model in terms of the Coastal Zone Management Act, where NOAA is the agency administering this, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and it's through a, an act of Congress that NOAA administers this, and then states can can set laws actually beyond the, the state borders to address some of the things they want to do to protect and, and develop their coast. And some of the states let the local governments as well make their own policies. And so whenever there's a potential project or something to be approved, the three levels of approval between the, the state and the federal government and the localities are coordinated in, in one review. That could be a model for, for some kind of climate coordination in terms of an act like that. I, I don't have a, a clear view of how you coordinate everything uh, between all the states and all the localities, just because climate change adaptation is, again, so much broader than just how do you deal with one particular portion of, of the coast. Uh, I, I would like to think that this executive order with the National Climate Task Force could, could do something, but it's going to take a lot of work at the federal level to, to really make that a reality of coordination, even just at the federal level, let alone coordination with the, the states and localities and tribes and territories. Jennifer and Kate, do you have any thoughts maybe on how state and local governments can work together? work better together, perhaps even working more with the tribes as Barrett had brought up earlier? Yes, absolutely. So this is something which, if I guess I borrow from the British, like is a little bit of a sticky wicket. Um, I think there's an increasing recognition, especially when it comes to impacts like wildfires and flooding, 
that these are cross-jurisdictional impacts if you're defining a jurisdiction as like a, a an entity of state or local government, as Jennifer talked about, being a county or maybe a municipality. Um, but our legal system was not set up to think about cross-jurisdictional impacts, even though, you know, we've had around for a long time things thinking like, you know, natural resources and, you know, sharing of water and drought and those types of issues. So how do you take a legal system that wasn't set up to deal with cross-jurisdictional impacts um, to deal with cross-jurisdictional impacts? And I think this is an area that there's a lot of discussion around, um, but maybe not a lot of uh, solid solutions that have come out of it. Um, you can look to examples like in Florida and California um, and other states where there may be opportunities for informal um, regional collaboration. Um, and even the location Jennifer mentioned that we're working in in Louisiana, um, there's the state set up these sort of regional watershed bodies through what it calls the Louisiana Watershed Initiative um, to start thinking about you know, regional level coordination from a flooding perspective um, on a watershed scale. Um, but I'd say some of these are the exception rather than the norm. Um, I think there's opportunities for states to provide um, increased types of legal authority for local governments to think across boundaries, um, whether that's something that's mandatory, um, maybe in a transportation context, or it could incentivize them um, to think about it as well, um, but wouldn't be mandatory. Um, New Hampshire and Maryland have some recent examples of these, um, including to think about opportunities to look at raising funds uh, to address um, cross-jurisdictional impacts because you know one jurisdiction shouldn't have to bear that on its own. Um, and also as you're gonna have more transitions between populations and natural resources, um, this might help sort of compound and emphasize the need for this discussion. Um, but to date, even I think with these optional authorities, um, I think to, based on my perspective, there has not yet been a lot of local uptake, um, just because again, I think it's the nature of the legal system we're in, and it's going to require not only legal changes, but sort of transformational changes in terms of the way um, state and local governments especially are doing business. And I'll mention here some of the existing uh, structures we have, like MPOs, um, uh, metropolitan planning organizations, and then in California, where I'm at, there is a bill, I think it's an AB897, looking at developing regional climate networks. It looks like there might be some movement there. Um, Jennifer, do you have any thoughts on cross-jurisdictional coordination to add? So in addition to what Katie and um, Bear have already mentioned, I think more than just looking at cross-jurisdiction collaboration, we also need to look at it from a more interdisciplinary nature um, because that's the nature of climate as a threat. So, um, you know, what we need as, as many urban planners like to say is a whole systems approach because the disproportionate impact that many communities face when it comes to climate change, they're experiencing equity in so many other areas of their day-to-day -day lives, right? So um, local governments, planners, decision makers really need to consider a holistic and a comprehensive approach to climate adaptation at the local level, not just when it comes to planning or passing laws and regulations, but also in how they communicate the risks, the threats, and then the opportunities to community members. Because, you know, why should a resident in a frontline community worry about climate change when you know, in any community engagement conversation you have with them, they'll prioritize more eminent concerns like public safety or food access or housing access um, or jobs, childcare, and, and the list goes on. And that can be a very delicate and also um, challenging and even ineffective conversation unless you're able to make the linkages between climate change, 
a residence built in social environment and the laundry list of other concerns that people have just to get through the day. Um, and you know, one way to address that is it's, it's not just enough to talk to the communities after you have a climate plan in the books and when you're ready to implement it, so to speak. They have to be part of the process. Communities have to be part of the process from day one um, to acknowledge that local residents can also be a part of the solution set and make sure that their voices and their priorities are integrated into the planning process rather than be this kind of ex post beneficiaries of climate policy. Because in many places, we see a deficit of trust between local governments and frontline communities. Um, and even if you have the correct programming and planning in place, one is have you ground truth that with the residents and two, will you get political will from the residents to adopt them? I think this all is a critical points to, to make. And since we're about out of time, I like to give everyone an opportunity to wrap up with one takeaway or one current development for our listeners. And we'll start again with Barrett, go to Katie, and then wrap up with Jennifer. I really like what Jennifer said about acting holistically and, and not losing sight of, of the people there in the process. Just full circle back to the beginning of this when we talked about what do we mean by adaptation. A lot of times when I talk about these tribal villages in Alaska, I say adaptation is the ability to your physical and cultural continuity, being able to be where you are and keep your life way in 50 years from now. And that requires government and the tribe itself to look not just at the physical aspects of climate change, but also economically, how are you going to adapt socially, culturally, politically, how are you going to adapt? So I very much echo what Jennifer had to say. Let's see. I third um, Jennifer's important insights. Um, I think for me, my takeaway is thinking about progress and hope. Um, so increasingly, especially during hurricane season, uh, there's been a lot of media coverage of the devastation going on in the Gulf um, after Hurricane Ida. And that's just one example of what we've seen in the past, and we may continually see more frequently and maybe more severely in the future. And so it becomes very sort of disparaging and really difficult sometimes, whether you're a climate adaptation professional or you're someone on the outside looking in, or you are somebody, as Jennifer was talking about, a planner in a community that all of a sudden is starting to think about climate and you don't know where to start. But ultimately by looking at the work um, that we all are doing, ELI is doing and others are doing, I think there's really a lot of impetus and reason to be hopeful because you can see even in the small ways, uh, maybe a, a local government is incorporating something about climate change into a plan for the first time. Or maybe you see a state coming out with this huge statewide program and funding to back it up so it can lead to implementation. There are positive actions happening across all levels of government, and we need to take that and hold on to it and let it inspire us to go forward. Every action can lead to something promising and hopeful, and I think that's what we need to sort of try to bring to these conversations, bring to the legal profession, and bring to the other myriad of professionals that are working in this space, because sitting and getting disparaged and going into a tailspin of thinking we can't make progress on this isn't going to get us anywhere, so I hope that the work that's sort of captured in this legal treatise and the work that all of us are doing on the grounds and in different areas um, can really lead more people to uh, inspiration and ultimately bring more action to the forefront of what we're seeing as a nation across all these different levels of government and communities. Uh, I think this is where Katie and I are such good compliments each other uh, to each other because Katie often brings the hope and I bring the cold bucket of water. That's the reality check that has a silver lining to it, I should think. 
Um, because I think it's impossible to have an honest conversation about climate adaptation um, unless we really talk about equity, especially when you have a scarcity of scarcity of resources to address such you know, a threat of this scale. You often hear about the principles of CBDR, common but differentiated responsibilities at the international level when we'd have, you know, these broad ranging climate policy talks, recognizing that different states or different countries have different responsibilities for addressing global environmental issues depending on their level of economic development. But here in the United States, we need to have a similar conversation domestically and whether we have an equitable allocation of resources to communities at various income levels to make sure that they're not being burdened um, disproportionately because fundamentally climate change is an environmental justice issue. It's, you know, most communities who are experiencing the worst packs of these hazards, whether it's flooding or heat are disproportionately low income in communities of color. And I, and I just can't stress that enough. Um, climate change is not some great equalizer where we're all experiencing the same thing together in equal measures. In many cases, these same frontline communities that we've talked about a lot for climate change are also frontline communities in other areas like public health, you know, as the pandemic has so forcefully shown us. Um, with Ida, you see that, you know, you have flooding on top of heat, on top of, you know, standing water and then humidity that leads to mold exposure on top of COVID. Um, and I guess the silver lining of this or the call to action is that, you know, as a society, we've never been very good at proactive planning. We've been more reactionary. We act after islands are, you know, disappearing or communities are being displaced and wildfires have decimated entire communities. We will never be able to rebuild our infrastructure as quickly as climate change is changing them. Um, but hopefully we are at a place now where that there has been enough of a crisis that decision makers feel the mandate to act and community members see the urgencies of this and that we still have enough of a runway and enough time to avert the worst case scenario. Sorry if that's very doom and gloom. <laughs> well, you make a good point that climate change is actually exposing and widening a number of existing cracks. So it's a very difficult situation, a, a genuine crisis involving hard decisions, but also there's some hope and opportunity if each level of government is willing to address climate change adaptation proactively and pragmatically. So unfortunately, we're out of time, but I really want to thank all of you for joining us. Jennifer, Katie, and Barrett, certainly illuminating. And we'll link in the show notes to Law of Environmental Protection so you can check out their chapter, some really great work on climate change. And quickly from each of you, where can our audience again learn more about the cutting edge work you're doing? Jennifer? I would point our audience members to the Georgetown Climate Center's website and Adaptation Clearinghouse, um, and also the Harris Institute's website um, on the Georgetown Law website. So lots of websiting, but um, Katie can speak more to GCC's work. Ditto to all of that. Um, I'd also encourage anybody who works for a state agency or governor's office on adaptation and resilience. Um, you can find more information about our state adaptation progress tracker and um, potentially joining our peer learning and networking forum called the State Policy Forum um, on our website. And this is Barrett. I feel like I'm just one of many people who are doing important climate change adaptation work on the ground. You might want to look to Tenana Chiefs Conference website. That's the umbrella and tribal organization in Interior Alaska. Google Tenana Chiefs Conference. Also Google New Talk Alaska. You'll find a wealth of information. If you're interested in seeing specifically what I'm doing, Google me, Barrett Ristroff, or check out my website, Ristroff Law. That's R-I-S-T-R-O-P-H-L-A-W dot com. Thank you so much. 
Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you, so please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at eli.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.